Welcome to Greensburg Baptist Church. We welcome our church family and also our visiting friends. Thank you for coming to worship with us. To find out more about Greensburg Baptist Church, our upcoming events, and other church activities, visit our website anytime at greensburgbaptist.com. I don't know what the imagery is when you think about home. Um, for me, the imagery is fitting. Um, Emily, had, the boys had given me a, a painting, and uh, it's one of the things I guess as I've gotten a little older I've come to enjoy more is the arts. And um, this one specifically hangs on my wall, and at the I don't know if you can see the caption or not. It's just really small print there, but it, it has a little title at the bottom: Planning Time. And usually most mornings when I finish my time with the Lord, there's this reminder of this farm scene. And it, it conjures up memories for me of um, growing up next to my grandparents and their farm. And there was a little gate um, that's kind of separated where we would go from my folks' house down to my grandparents' house. And there was this little trail that I would run down. And, and as I see this path, and I, just so many things about home and memories and garden and farming and Things of uh, just uh, growing up and being there, and, and it just—I don't know—I don't know if you have those memories of certain points in your life of of home and things that are just sweet and special to you. And when I, so when I see that painting each morning, I think about that. But specifically, the title "Planning Time," and I think that today is a day in which I have an opportunity to plant into my bride and my boys for their eternity. And God, how will I do that today? How will I plan and pour into them spiritually, preparing them for an eternal home? God, today is a day in which I have an opportunity to plan and to pour into my extended family. And God, how might you use me to do that today? And Lord God, today I know it's going to be a day in which you're going to bring folks from the church into my path. And, and Lord God, how might I plan into their lives and pour into their lives and, and point them back to you that they wouldn't forget about their eternal home? That they would live in light of eternity and what Christ has done on the cross and the power of the Spirit within them. And, and Father, I know that today I'm going to encounter others in my life. And Lord, how might I plant and pour into them and point them to your Son so that they might be prepared for an eternal home with you? So today I present to you this title, Don't Forget About Home. If you've been with us in the book of Isaiah, it is a challenging text because there are times when there is great highs and there are great lows. I think it fits well with life. And what's beautiful about it is today we come to a reminder of a great high again. Of a home that you and I have that these folks are going, getting ready to go into captivity, exile. Things are getting ready to get very bad for them. But there is a picture that Isaiah wants to paint for them to say, listen, you may be in the midst of exile. You may be in the midst of a barren land. You may be going through the worst of the worst for you. I do not want you to forget about your home. And it's not a home here on earth, he says. I want you to know there's a home in heaven. And so let's look to Isaiah 11 as we do. I want to throw several things at you, but first I want to say this. There is a rescuer who is coming, who has come, and will come again. The reason why I say that is, is again, this rescuer has come to take you home. There's a rescuer that, that is coming, has come, and will come again. Let's see if I can do this. I don't know if it will show very well. but So imagine this. Isaiah speaks to a people right during his day and time. So let's write Isaiah right there real quick. Isaiah, right? And so... 
we had this continuum. And so they're there waiting, looking, right? For the day and time in which there's going to come this rescuer, right? And so we, we would say, ultimately, that rescuer is Christ. What's unique is, is that we now sit at this point in history, right? So us, we're here somewhere. We can look and say, well, you know what? They were waiting on, on him to come. But we, in fact, know that he already has come. But yet we also sit in the midst of a time where we are waiting for Christ to come again. Right? And so we're sitting at this this amazing point in history that we look back and say, man, the Christ has come, the Messiah, the Rescuer has come. But we're waiting for when this eternal home shall come to its fulfillment, when he will come again. And so that kind of maybe gets us a mindset of how we look at the text as opposed to how the people of Isaiah would look at the text, right? They're here, we're over here, so our perspective's a little different. But listen to this, what's happening. So let's, let's walk back through it. The last chapter closed out with these words of Isaiah 10 and 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. Look what he says here. This great in height, he's speaking of the the nation of Assyria. This great in height, this great world power, he says, will be honed down and the lofty will be brought low. Look what it says. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Says this great world power that's on the scene now that towers over everyone, they're going to be cut down never to be remembered again. And then... Verse 1 of Isaiah 11 picks up. So sometimes where we have our chapter divides, it kind of maybe separates us from the context of what's happening. So again, context, you're hearing that. This great world power is going to be cut down, not to rise again. And then he begins verse 1 of Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot. So we had this shoot coming. He says it's from the stump of Jesse. Now who came from Jesse? Jesse was the father of King who? King David, right? So there's coming someone, right? And the stump is, right? They remind her, this stump of Jesse. Why? Because the people of God have been cut down. And they're wondering, is there any hope? Some of you are there today. Is there any hope? It says that this shoot, there's going to come forth from this shoot, the stump of Jesse, this Davidic king. He is going to come and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Saying, listen, it seems impossible now. It seems like there is absolutely no hope for you, people of God. But I want you to know that there is going to come one who is going to rise up and he is going to bear much fruit. Ultimately, the fruit of salvation and the opportunity of eternal life. And listen to what it says. It begins to describe who this one is, this this rescuer of God's people. It says in verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. See that? Verse 2 of Isaiah 11. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is important, this being used here again. So we have the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. We see that. Look up if you would. Isaiah 61, verse 1, uses almost the same wording. It says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So again, we have the Spirit of the Lord God. We just have the different notion here that it's upon me rather than resting upon. But the same type of imagery is being implied. And then look what happens. This is interesting. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is walking in the synagogue and he takes a scroll, right? And he's going to go ahead and read it. He opens it up to Isaiah the prophet. And listen to what he reads. Verse 18. He reads from Isaiah 61. Look what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then watch this. And he began to say, Jesus began to say to this to them. Today, this scripture has been what? 
been fulfilled in your hearing. He says, I want you to know that the very scripture that Isaiah prophesied about, that there was going to come a rescuer, one who the Spirit of the Lord was going to rest upon. He says, I want you to know that scripture has been fulfilled today in your hearing. Why? Because I've come. So we have clear affirmation. And you also, if you hear that imagery of the Spirit of the Lord right there shall rest upon him, you may remember that from Matthew chapter 3 and at Jesus' baptism in verse 16, Matthew records that, again, we had this spirit descending like a dove. And it says the Spirit of the Lord came to rest upon him. The Spirit of the Lord comes and rests upon this, this rescuer, this sovereign Son of God, the divine Son of God, the one from the stump of Jesse. The rescuer has come. And so the New Testament is saying to us, listen, who you hear about in Isaiah 11, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. So again, we have New Testament affirmation that who we're reading about today is in fact Jesus Christ, the true Son of God. Look with me if you would. It says about him, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And notice what he has here. It says that he has the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. These are judicial or governmental attributes. Understanding indicates that he knows the heart of an issue. This one that is coming to rule and reign can in fact, remember we heard back there in Isaiah 9, that the government shall be upon his what? Shoulders, right? And, and he says his peace will know no end. He's going to bring an eternal peace. It says, you want to know how this is happening? It says, well, the Spirit of the Lord's resting upon him. It's a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Further, look what it says. He has the spirit of counsel and might. If you look in Isaiah 36, I believe it's at verse 5, yeah. This refers to strategy, to military strength. That there's one who knows a plan to bring peace to the nations, and he actually has the power to bring it about. It says the spirit of counsel and might. But not only that, look further with me. It says he has the spirit of knowledge. He knows truth and can rightly apply it. Spirit of truth, spirit of knowledge. And then we hear this affirmation. And the fear of the Lord. If you're counting at home and if you're keeping up here, what you're starting to see is this, that the spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him, right? We might say that's number one. And then we're further defining that spirit of wisdom, two, spirit of understanding, three, a spirit of counsel, four, spirit of might, five, a spirit of knowledge, six, and then the fear of the Lord, seven. If you've done much time in biblical study, you know that seven is the number for completion. It's God's number. There's finally going to come one who is perfect in the spirit, and it's Jesus Christ. But this this admonition that he is has the fear of the Lord is often one that we wonder, what does that even mean? What does the fear of the Lord look like, right? And so Alec Motier, again, I've shared with you before, he's an Irish scholar, man, just unbelievable insight. And he cites several things. I just want to share four of them with you about what kind of impact the fear of the Lord has upon our lives. Look with me if you would. The impact of the fear of the Lord. First, it motivates obedience. Look at this, Exodus chapter 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. That, he says, look what he says, the fear of him may be before you. Why? Well, he says that, right? Here's your interpretation. This tells you why. That, he says, you may not what? That you may not sin. He says the fear of God is there to motivate you and I to keep us from sinning. Further, look at me. It molds conduct. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 9. He says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? Why? Why is he doing this? Two, right? Tells you why. Here it is. Here's why it is. To prevent the taunts of the nations. He says, listen, when you walk in the fear of God, it keeps others from saying that you and I are hypocrites. 
It molds our obedience. It molds our conduct. Is it work? Further, look what it says. It motivates genuine serving. Look what it says here. Serve, he says, serve the Lord with what? With fear. He says, listen, as you know this God, as you come to experience him in all of his holiness and his awesomeness, there ought to be a way in which you now serve out of a fear, out of a reverence of who is this God who would love someone like me? Who is this God who would step into history and take my sin and shame upon the cross? Who is this God who could rescue me from death and and sin and separation from God? Who is this one? It motivates serving and further it moves us to worship Psalm 5 verse 7. He says, I will bow down. So again, here's the action. He's bowing down towards your holy temple in what? The fear of you. Again, he says the fear of you right there. Maybe marking that wrong, but he says, listen, it moves us to worship. Right? And just, there's this work of the fear of God being upon our lives that it moves us to obey. This fear of God upon our lives that it transforms our conduct to recognize, listen, there is a responsibility for the way I walk. I know that I'm going to give an account. I can't live any way I want. I can't just abuse God's grace. Well, He's forgiven me. I can live any way I want. No. It moves us to serve and to worship. And look at this. This is beautiful right here. And his delight. Look what it says about this this coming rescuer, this servant of God, the stump of Jesse. And his delight shall be in what? The fear of the Lord. He delights in it. That's the opposite of what we think when it comes to fearing God. Let's be honest. We think of fearing God as like some kind of Like it doesn't fit, it doesn't work. Like if I fear God, then that's not good. But it says, in fact, this one who's coming actually enjoys. There's joy in in serving God. That must say to us that there is something about God that maybe we're failing to grasp. About how good this God is, how perfect He is. That fearing and serving Him, listen, is not indeed a bad thing. He says, listen, I want you to know that there's joy. And so I'd ask this question of myself. Is it my joy? Do I, do I enjoy the holiness and the awesomeness of my God? Is it my delight to fear Him? Does it move me, right, in these ways of obedience? Do you enjoy obeying God? Is there a joy and you find in obeying Him? Is there a joy that you find in saying no to the things of the world and yes to the things of God? Is it transforming your conduct? Have you found joy in serving God? Is there a joy that it's not because I have to? No, I get to. It is an opportunity, an expression of my love and devotion of saying, God, thank you. Of course, I'll serve you, God. What would you have of me? What about your worship? Has your worship become no longer joyful? Is there a lack of the fear of God upon your life? He says, listen, I want you to know that this one that's coming, he enjoys serving and obeying and fearing his father. It's 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 just delight. That's what else the text says about him. He says, when this one comes, he shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Finally, a judge that no one can con. You can't bribe him. You can't deceive him. He looks to the very heart of the matter. And some of us, we are rejoicing because you have been wronged in so many ways. 
People have stepped over you. People have done power plays behind you to get that job or to move in that position. And you just feel like every moment that, man, you just keep getting stepped on and overlooked. But finally, there's one coming that, guess what? Nobody can bribe him. Nobody can manipulate him. He's not going to judge by what his eyes see or his ears hear why he's going to look to the very heart of the matter. And yet at the same time, the beauty of that is also terrifying. Because he knows that you're in my coming here, our worship, our serving, our giving, our every moment. He knows whether it's true and genuine or not. It's not fooling him. And listen, Jesus takes this even a step further and he says, listen, guys, John chapter seven, listen to these words. Do not judge. This is what he says to his disciples. Guys, do not judge by what? By appearances. But judge with what? With a right judgment. Jesus says, listen, guys, who I am should impact you. That you should go and do likewise. That you should follow my example. He's building upon the truth of Isaiah 11. He says, listen, do we often judge by appearances? Do you? Do you find yourself judging by what you see or what you hear? Do you find yourself maybe judging by the color of people's skin? Do you find yourself judging based upon their accolades or their corporate ranking or the title in which they hold? Maybe you make judgments based upon the uniform that they wear. I don't know how you judge things, but Jesus says, listen, guys, I want you to follow my example. Do not judge by appearances. Judge with a right judgment. The church, the people of God, we are to judge rightly. And the way to judge rightly is to come under His truth and submission by the power of God's Spirit within us. He says, listen guys, that's how we are to judge. Look further with me if you would. It says, further, he says, but with righteousness, He shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He says, listen here, listen, this, this, is, this is encouraging and also challenging. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. Now he's going to act in behalf of the poor and the meek, but there's also the reminder is this. He will judge. Even the poor won't escape it. The rich won't escape it. The atheist won't escape it. The churchgoer won't escape it. He will judge all people. And that includes me and you. And he will do it in righteousness. Perfect holiness. He says, listen, I want you to know this judge is perfect. This is what the people are longing for, but they have to recognize and realize that none of us here are righteous. If He judges you on righteousness, none of you or me will merit up enough to be accepted by Him. Righteousness is perfection. None of us are. So that's why this rescuer came to bring us home. He came and lived a perfect life to take our unrighteousness upon himself and by faith credit his righteousness to you. Since this one is coming, he is the perfect judge. And look what it says further there, verse 4. 
He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Paul takes this text in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and listen to what he says, beginning in verse 8 of Second Thessalonians 2, speaking of the end times. And then the lawless one, speaking of the Antichrist, he, he will be revealed. Whom the Lord Jesus, notice that, look what he says, Paul says, the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Listen to what it said here again back in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4. He says he shall judge the poor and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Paul says you want to know who that is? That is Jesus Christ. And then he says this and this is where it gets challenging. All right, We're going to go to face some challenges in a moment on interpretation of where this lands uh, eschatologically like in regards to the end times. Where does this fit? Look what he says. So the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. The same thing of Isaiah 11, 4. He's saying that truth. And bring to nothing, all right? Look what he says here. By what? His coming. Here's what's challenging. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5, we have the speaking of this one that's going to come. The Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon him. Spirit of counsel and might. Spirit of knowledge. Spirit of understanding. Right? The fear of the Lord. And we look at that and see, and Jesus himself even says, hey, listen, that's me. So we know that in the midst of Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, we have the speaking about the fact that Christ was coming for the first time. But now in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 8, Paul takes verse 4 of Isaiah 11 and says that's speaking about when Jesus will come the second time. And we know that, listen, it almost 2,000 years have expanded from when Jesus came to where we are now. So in the first five verses of Isaiah 11, you are hearing a time frame that's at least a 2,000 years. And yet it doesn't even seem like that Isaiah is recognizing that. He's seeing it. Why? Because here's often what happens. Um, Bible teachers sometimes use this, and I think it's a fitting imagery of the mountains. I don't know if you've ever been driving and, and you see mountains in the distance. And you look and you're like, man, that is absolutely a massive mountain. But the closer you come, you begin to recognize that it's in fact not a mountain, but mountains. And sometimes in between the first mountain and when you get to the next mountain is a huge valley separating. Now it all fits in the mountain ranges. We look at it from a distance, but as we get close, we see that maybe there's a separation. And I think that's a fitting way to understand what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, listen, the Christ is going to come. The rescuer is going to come. But from when he comes to when, as Paul says there in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 18, his final coming, there may be a large gap. So when we look at this imagery, we have to understand that or recognize it. So look up if you would now. Home. Isaiah's going to describe, he's described just now the rescuer, but now he's going to begin to describe the place for which you've been rescued. This is a place of hope and peace where everything is different. And I want to be straight up honest with you. I'm not sure exactly when this is. Used to, I could say, hey, listen, I look at Revelation. I think I really see it clearly. I understand that this is going to happen and this is going to take place. And here's the millennial reign and here's this pre-tribulation rapture. And the more I study, the more I look at it, I begin to recognize, man, I'm telling you what, there are some serious challenges to whatever view you hold to. It's not exactly clear. I'm not sure exactly as I look at the mountain and see that mountain. Man, I, God, I, I'm not sure exactly how this all unfolds. But what I want you to land on today, no matter what your view of the end times is, is that home is coming. 
Home is coming. Rest in that. Look with me, you would. Listen to this change again. As you think about your eternal home and the rescuer has come to bring you there, listen to these words. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. So look what he says here. The predator, wolf, leopard, lion, is also with the prey. Lamb, young goat, the calf or the fattened calf. He says, listen, I want you to know that there's going to come a transformation in relationships. Those who once were enemies are no longer. And here, beloved, I think that we might need to take a pause just for a moment and say, does God not want to do this in our relationships now? Should not the church and should not you as a follower of Christ in your relationships reflect the kingdom that is coming? I mean, isn't this part of what Brother Todd's showing us as we're praying? Thy kingdom, what? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here, what? On earth as it is in heaven. Does God want to do this? For some of you, you've been predators for far too long. You are tyrants in your home, tyrants on the job site, tyrants in the community. I am calling and compelling you this hour. Come and bow your heart and life before the Lord Jesus Christ. For those here who feel like prey. I can't promise you that things will change. But there is a kingdom coming when it will all be different. I compel you to rest in that. Pray that it would change here and now. That his kingdom would come now here on earth. God, that you would bring reconciliation in those relationships that have been predator and prey. But God, even if you don't, my hope is not simply in this life, but in the one to come. I look to Christ. So there's a change in relationship. Look at this, verse 7. Look at this again. This is your home, beloved. If you're in Christ, this is where you're headed. And he's using the animal kingdom to help show us some really important things that are going to change about this new kingdom that's coming. Look what he says, verse 7. And the cow, look what he says here. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. We don't have much time, but write down Genesis 1, verse 29 through 30. This is a return to Eden-like conditions where at the beginning, this is what the creatures were doing. They were eating of plants. It says, listen, it's going to return back to that. There's going to be no more killing. Look what he says. Further, verse 8. So not only is there a change in relationships, a change in the nature of things, but there's also a removal of the curse. Verse 8 of Isaiah 11. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. If you remember back to Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, as my boys sometimes talk about that sneaky snake, and there was division, right? Not only ultimately between just snakes and humanity, there's something much greater, right? Of, of Satan's seed, the demonic line that will come, and the seed of God. There's going to be constant war. But he says, listen, I want you to know that there's going to finally come a removal of the curse. This is a transformation of all things. Look further with me. Look what he says. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Did you hear that? There is going to come a day in this new kingdom of no more hurting. No more war. 
No more broken relationships. Tell me, come on, maybe just a few things. What are you excited about in the no mores? Come on, throw one out. Something you're, you're excited about that's not going to be anymore in God's kingdom. Sickness, hallelujah. What else? What? Death, amen. Fear, what else? Tears. Just listen, I want you to know, guys, they're not going to hurt or destroy. This is all going to come about in a major change. The question is, that we have to answer is, well, when's he talking about? And that's the one that, you know what, this is tough. The question is, does this speak of the millennial reign of Christ, specifically in Revelation chapter 20? And so there's some that look at this text and say, you know what, that's speaking of a time here on this earth before the new creation in which Christ will return and set up his kingdom and these things will be changed. Others look at it and say, you know, when I look at Isaiah 65, there's similar language that's used. And in Isaiah 65, it speaks of a new heaven and new earth when it talks about these things. And so they say, you know what, it doesn't speak necessarily of this millennial reign, but this looks forward to the ultimate removal of the curse and the new heaven and new earth. As I noted before, I'm not as sure about this as I once was. Whether it's the millennial reign or this is the new heaven and new earth or some mixing of the two. But the hope is this. It is coming. This is coming. This is the hope. Right? And so we hear this hope, this this great news. And it may be beginning to, you hear about the rescue. You hear about home. And you wonder, well, what should my response be? The text says this. There's a call for all sinners to come home. There is a call for all sinners in light of the rescuer has come, in light of the home that there is to indwell for all eternity. He says, I want you to know there's a call for all sinners to come home. Look up in the wood. Verse 9 again of Isaiah 11, it says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why are they not going to do this, God? For. That's what he says there. For the earth shall be full of what? The knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of God. As the waters cover the sea. He says, listen, you want to know what the hope is for bringing about this kingdom? It's the knowledge of God. It's coming to know the Father through the Son. That is the hope of this kingdom that is to come. It is only to be inhabited by those who can come to the Father. And you and I can't come unless we come to God through the Son. Why? Because to come to the Father means you must be sinless and none of us are. So the rescuer had to step into humanity the Son of God, fully God, fully man, and die upon the cross, not for His own sin, but for our sin, that we could stand before God, sinless. The Bible uses the word justified, declared innocent, not guilty before a holy God, by faith in the Son of God alone. And he says this knowledge of the Lord is going to cover the entire earth. Look what happens here further with me, though. He says, in that day, verse 10, the root of Jesse, again, looking back to verse 1, the root of Jesse, this promised king, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. Now what's huge about this is, is it says, listen, when Jesus comes, it's going to be a signal, a sign to all people, all nations, to come to God. And Paul says in Romans 15, look what Paul does. He cites it in verse 12. Look at me, you would, verse 12, just for a moment. And again, he says, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. And that day, he says, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people. It says, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul says, listen, guys, 
the day that Isaiah promised was coming, when all people, all people, despite whether the fact they've known God or ever worshipped God, all people are going to be called, they're going to be, God is going to begin doing a work amongst all nations, even the outcast. He says, listen, I want you to know that day has come. Why? Because Jesus has come. He says, listen, church, whether you recognize it or not, you stand at a pivotal point in humanity. A point in which the Son of God has come and will return again. And in between that, you and I stand in a place in which God desires to draw all nations and all people unto Him. It is an unbelievable opportunity. So I must ask, will this church take the gospel to the nations? Will you? Will this church take the gospel to this nation? Maybe Oklahoma. Will this church take the gospel to this state? Changers, others. Will this church, will you, take the gospel to this community? To your family? To your co-workers? To your classmates? To your teammates? He says, listen, I want you to know what he says here. And that day, verse 11, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. And notice what he says here. It's from Assyria and from Egypt. And he mentions many other. Why? Why is what was happening here? What's so significant about Assyria and Egypt that God is going to recover the remnant that remains of his people? Right again, we had this imagery of a second time, and if you come to verse 15, I know our time's moving today, so I'm going I'm to hurry, but he says the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and so he's going to wave his hand over. It says in verse, they're going to walk across as in sandals. He says, listen, there's going to come like a second exodus. When God begins to draw all people unto him, when God begins to do this great work and a point in history after this son of God comes to rescue and he says, listen, I want you to know it's from Assyria and from Egypt. Why? Why are those two at the front? Because of the two greatest powers in that day and time. And he says, listen, I want you to know that no power can stop God from saving. I want you to know that no one in your family, no matter how bad and how far away you think they are, it does not and will not be able to keep God from saving and rescuing them. No one you know is too dirty. They're not too far gone. They're not too scattered to the side. He says, listen, I want you to know that God can draw and raise people from anywhere at any time. And so I scribble this down. If we know, look what it says in verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel, gather dispersed of Judah. And he notes it's from where the four corners of the earth it says from everywhere. God's going to bring people from everywhere. And so I wrote this down. So God's drawing and bringing will always involve the going of God's people with the gospel. God's drawing and God's bringing of people from the four corners of the earth will always involve the going of God's people with the gospel. Are you a part of that in your daily life? Just sharing the gospel, living the gospel where God has you and where he's calling you. And so we finish with these words. Back to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's interesting the wording used there, resting place, is also the same Hebrew word that's used in Ruth chapter 1 verse 9 that speaks of 
going home. It's the same word that's used in the beloved Psalm 23, verse 2, that he shall leave me beside quiet what? Waters. The waters there can speak of waters of a resting place or waters of home. Do you hear it? You no longer have to wonder. You no longer are going to and fro. You finally come to the fountain of life. You finally come to the rescuer, the redeemer. You, beloved in Christ, will have finally come home. And he says, listen, I want you to describe this resting place. Well, it's really hard to describe it, but the best word that you can use is it is going to be what? Glorious. And what's glorious? Well, his person. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of the fear of the Lord, of delighting in the fear of the Lord. But also think about his work as you think about this home and resting place. He's going to remove the curse. He's going to bring peace to all. He's going to gather the nations. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. All of this is glorious and can only be done by the root of Jesse, who is none other than the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Brother Todd and I went to a conference um, earlier this year, and, and we heard a song there that has absolutely captivated my heart, so much so that at times my family says, that's enough, we've listened to it enough. Um, let's try another song, Dad. And the song is this, All Glory Be to Christ. And I'm gonna, we're going to play right here just the last end, just maybe just a minute of the last part of the lyrics of this song. And I want you to hear it, just the beauty of this hope of all glory be to Christ. Listen to these words as our musicians make their way. as well 
what Isaiah is getting at. Oh, glory be to Christ. The rescuer has come for your soul to be saved and redeemed. The hope of heaven is found in Christ and faith and trust in Him. Have you made that good profession, acknowledging Him as the Son of God who came to save and set you free? Have you done that, beloved? Beloved, are you hoping in Him and the home that is there? Some of you are facing great trials. Place your hope and trust in what the King of kings and Lord of lords is bringing about a new heaven and a new earth. Would you stand and worship the one who is all glory be to Christ? We'd love to pray with you, talk with you. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.